I want to start by just talking a little bit about uh, my experience in the school towards the end of the year. Where we're getting into the month of April, May, and as I looked at the lesson plan, the material I had left to cover, I knew that I was going to be finishing up early in a couple of subjects. So I had to decide what to do uh, to keep the students engaged for the rest of the year in those subjects. So as I thought about it, I said I want to develop, so I want to use something that's going to develop the attitude of teamwork but also keep them engaged and keep them busy. So I finally decided that what I was going to do was I was going to go out and get a couple of uh, jigsaw puzzles and have them put jigsaw puzzles together uh, over the last week, week and a half, two weeks. So I did, I got two, two jigsaw puzzles. One was easy, a couple hundred pieces. They blew through that in about 24 hours. But the second one was a bit more complicated. Uh, it was a thousand pieces. They worked diligently at it, and so mission accomplished. Little did I realize that God was going to use that incident as something that uh, would be directly related to the subject matter that I'm going to be talking about over the next two weeks. Is that feeding back, or is it just me that's hearing it? Okay. All right. Sounds okay? Okay. Anyway, so what we're going to be talking about over the next two weeks is something that's been referred to in some circles as the Joseph question. It is a question uh, that we're all very familiar with and that we've all asked ourselves uh, probably numerous times over the course of our lives. And the, the question is simple, and the question is simply this, why is this happening to me? As uh, the words of my pastor, Pastor Evans, down through the years continue to ring ring in my ears and ring in my mind that saying that that he often said when uh, when adverse circumstances arose in life he would say that no one escapes life the reality is is there are different difficult and sometimes tragic things that happen to us sooner or later the proverbial shoe will drop in our lives and we will be we will face tough sad, depressive, sometimes anxiety-filled situations, and uh, even we can also expect some tragic and catastrophic events to come into our lives. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not immune to this. There is a, a whole genre of apostate Christianity uh, that is promoting the health and welfare and, and uh, prosperity gospel. Uh, that if you do this, if you do that, everything is going to be cheeky and rosy. Uh, that is not the case. As a matter of fact, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, our Lord promises something entirely different. He says in John chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that word tribulation there means pressure. It means pressing down. So there are times in your life, most especially if you seek to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are going to feel like you have been thrown into a wine press. And that is promised and that's going to happen and it's in those times we need to cling to the words of Christ where Christ said, be of good cheer. 
We're going to talk about that next week. How can you be of good cheer when you're in the wine press, when you're under this kind of pressure, when you're experiencing this type of fear, anxiety, sadness, depression, the whole, the whole spectrum of human emotion that accompanies any tragic or catastrophic event that comes into our life. It's during these times that as believers we cry out, God, why is this happening to me? I'm doing my best to try and serve you. I'm doing my best to try and develop the spiritual gifts that you have given me to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to my family, to be faithful to those around me. Why are you allowing these things to happen to me to come into my life? One of the Psalms that captures this, this the, the emotional turmoil that surrounds these type of events is found in Psalm 88, where we read, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. God, you have forgotten about me, and you will no longer help me. This is a quote on this psalm from Thomas Constable. He says that it is the cry of a believer whose life has gone awry, who desperately seeks contact with Yahweh, but who is unable to evoke a response from God. This is indeed the dark night of the soul, when the troubled person must be and must stay in the darkness of abandonment, utterly alone. If you've walked this earth for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you can sympathize with the feelings and the expressions of the psalmist here. There are times in life when you go through these catastrophic events, when you go through uh, what I call these life crises, that it seems like that at that time, for a while, God seems to leave you on your own. He seems to disappear and we cry out, God, where, where have you gone? Why aren't you here? Why is this happening to me? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, is we're going to define the question, the Joseph question, which essentially I've already done. Why is this happening to me? And then we're going to look at key events in the life of Joseph to glean the answer of why this happens in the life of the believer. And then next week, we're going to look at what our attitude and response should be in the light of the answer that God's Word gives us from this question. So that's where we're headed. So we're going to take a little journey in the life of Joseph today. And I'm not going to start with Joseph. I'm going to start with his father. Because to say that Joseph came from a dysfunctional family would be the understatement of the year. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 29, where we look at the event 
around Jacob taking a wife. And so the story goes that Jacob has been sent to this land by his father Isaac because Isaac did not want Jacob to take a wife from among the Canaanites. So he sent, he sent Jacob back to uh, the land where he was from, you know, Mesopotamia, Iraq, Iran, that area, Ur, to look for a wife. And so Jacob travels and he comes to a well and there's a young woman there and her name is Rachel. And Rachel invites him back to meet her family. And that's kind of where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 29. In verse 15 we read, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And so Laban has two daughters. One of them is Leah. And the fact that it says there that she was of delicate eyes is a rather poetic way of saying that she wasn't a very attractive woman uh, to begin with. And then she had the physical handicap of poor eyesight. Uh, as a matter of fact, the name Leah in, in the Akkadian language from which this family originated actually means wild cow. So, so Leah wasn't very attractive and she had this physical impairment, which was no small impairment in that age, right? To be impaired of eyesight was a big deal and her chances of actually ever getting married were slim to none. But on the other hand, it says that he had another daughter named Rachel. And it says there that she was beautiful of form and appearance, which is a nice biblical poetic way of saying she had a beautiful face and a body to match. Okay? So that's where we are. Then Jacob, now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife at the end of seven years for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Okay, so Laban pulls a fast one here. A couple things. Number one, you may be asking yourself, well, how the heck did Jacob not know that the woman that he was consummating his marriage with was Leah and not Rachel? Well, because it was customary during that time that the bride would remain veiled until the morning after the marriage was consummated, right? That was the custom 
in the Middle East during that time. Okay, but there was another clue here that had Jacob uh, been more introspective or circumspect about, he should have picked up, picked up on, was that the custom of the age was that the husband would take his bride, would go back to his family's home, would consummate the marriage, would have a feast there for seven days, and then return to the bride's family and have an additional wedding feast there. So things were up in the air. Uh, uh, Jacob gets tricked and he says, okay, I'll serve her another seven years. But here's the part that I want to really focus on of what it says in verse 30, at the end of another seven years, then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah and he served Laban still another seven years. And so Jacob wanted Rachel, not Leah, and it clearly says in the text that he loved Rachel more than Leah, even though the wife that God had given him was Leah, and she was the one, in fact, who would bear him more sons. But you can see here that there's a favoritism, there's a favoritism and rivalry that begins here, right at the very start, between these two wives in giving Jacob sons. So not only are there two wives in the mix here, now there are two handmaidens or slave girls who are also in the mix. So there's all of this dysfunction and all of this turmoil and all of this competition in the family. And it doesn't just stop between the wives and, and their handmaidens who were given over to Jacob to father children. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on, and you can imagine how it would express itself in the sons that emerged. So now we jump forward. So this is a family with dysfunction. There's unhappiness. There's, uh, there's controversy and rivalry going on between Jacob's wives, between Rachel and Leah and their slave girls, and now it spreads on, it, it translates down into the sons, and now we come to Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, some years later, approximately 17, 18, give or take years later, now we're at the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Now we read there, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilpha and the sons of Zilpha, those were the two slave girls of Rachel and Leah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. And so you see here, again, Jacob is playing favorites. He favored Rachel over Leah. Now he favors Joseph over his other children. And where he made him that, you know, the multicolored tunic there, was a representation that in, in essence, he had placed Joseph 
in charge of the family business. So Joseph being the younger was in a position of authority over his older brothers and they resented it. And so it says there in that verse that I read, he, he in, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the events of his watching over things, he saw that these young men, his older brothers were doing something wrong. And so he reported the incident as he should have to his father and his brothers hated him all the more for it. We read in verse four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. In essence, the dream, actually he had two dreams. He had, he had a, a dream of, of seven stocks that were bundled together and they were bowing down. These stocks were, were bowing, I think maybe 12 stocks and they were bowing down to him, you know? And then he had a second dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars were, were bowing down to him. So he's telling his brothers and his families these, these dreams. Now, it's probably not something you wanna share with your brothers who already hate you around the breakfast table while you're having your cornflakes. And so they hated him even more for it. And it's at that point that they decided that they were gonna, that they were gonna do something about it. So he ends up being uh, he ends up uh, having to go see how his brothers are doing managing the sheep later on in the chapter. And when they see him coming, they decide they're going to do something about it. So in verse 19 of Genesis 37, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard it. Reuben is the oldest brother. But Reuben heard it, and he, and, uh, and he delivered him out of his hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So, so here they are, they're gonna kill him, they're gonna throw his body in a pit, but Reuben, the older brother, because he's not really going along with this, is thinking to himself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna propose an, an alternate solution here, and then while the when the tempers have cooled, I will go get him out of, his pit, get him out of the pit and bring him back to his father. But the Bible doesn't tell us why, but at some point here, now Reuben leaves. He goes. And while, is that providence or is that coincidence? Reuben leaves and he's not there when these Midian, Midianite slave traders come along and they say, hey, you know what? Let's make a few bucks out of this deal. So while Reuben's not there, they take Joseph up out of the pit and they sell him to the Midianite slave traders for, uh, for 20 shekels, which is the equivalent of $1,000 or $1,500 in today's money. And then Reuben comes back and his brother's gone. Coincidence? 
or providence. The same thing with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Coincidence or providence? So the Midianite slave traders, they take Joseph and they take him to Egypt and he ends up in the house of Potiphar, who is the captain of the guard, and enter now Potiphar and his strumpet wife. So we move forward now to, uh, let's see, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him down, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer over his house, and that he put him on, and all that he put under his authority. So he had become the second leader in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. The problem was, as I just said, that he had a wife who was basically a strumpet. And so now we move on in the text, and it says, And it came to pass, in verse 7, after these things that the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my sister does not know what is with me in the house and all he has committed and that he has, that he has to my hand. Jumping down, so it was that she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work that none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so eventually what happens is she accuses Joseph of rape, of sexual assault. And Joseph ends up in prison. He did nothing wrong, but he ends up in prison. Coincidence or providence? So now Joseph's in prison. And now there are two individuals. Joseph is essentially put in charge of just administering over the daily needs of the prisoners. And while he's there, these two prisoners from the king's court come in. One is the baker, and the other one is, it says butler, but essentially he was the cupbearer. He was the one who would taste the food that Pharaoh was going to eat or drink to make sure it wasn't poison. So these two end up in prison. And while they're in prison, they both have dreams. The baker has a dream that he's got a basket of bread on his head and the birds are coming and landing on it and they're eating, and they're eating the bread. And the cupbearer has, you know, uh, another dream about wines being pressed into a cup and, you know, he, he has the cup, so on and so forth. And so Joseph interprets the dream. He says to the baker, in three days, your head's going to be removed from off of you. To the cupbearer, he says, in three days, you will be restored in favor to the king's court. And the only thing that I ask when you're restored in favor to the king is that you remember me and let him know I was fair. I treated you well. But look what happens. 
It says in verse 23 that after the butler was released from prison, it says, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He did not remember or keep his word, but he forgot about Joseph. So Joseph was still in prison, languishing. Coincidence or providence? Now we move forward two years later. Two years have passed now since this event between the, uh, the, the, uh, the servants of the king and now. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh now, king of Egypt, has two dreams. One dream is seven fat cows, and the other dream is seven skinny cows. And Pharaoh is like, what are these dreams about? And he calls on the wise men, and nobody has any idea of what's going on. And all of a sudden, the butler remembers. And we read this in Genesis chapter 41, starting at verse 46. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my fault this day. I remember that I was supposed to say something about this man that I'm going to speak to you about now. I remember now that whole event. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night. He and I, each one of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And then it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. So after two years, the cupbearer remembers all this incident. Coincidence or providence? So Joseph is summoned out of the prison and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. There are gonna be seven years of plenty in the land. The crops will produce abundantly for seven years. During that seven years is the time to lay up plenty, the excess, because it will be followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph ends up now moving from not only ahead in the household of the captain of the guard, he moves up to being head of the household in the household of Pharaoh. Number two to Pharaoh only. Coincidence or providence? After two years, no, after seven years, now two years in, now there's a famine, just like Joseph interpreted the dream would come, indeed comes, and this famine is striking not only Egypt, but the entire Middle East, including the land of Canaan, where Jacob and his sons are living with their wives and their families. So Jacob says to his sons, go down to Egypt and buy grain there because they have grain to spare. So his sons go to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 1, we read, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down now to that place and buy for us that we may live and, and not die. 
So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And as they come before Joseph, they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph is now going to, uh, you know, to, to uh, engage in a dialogue with him. And he's saying, look, you guys have come out to spy out the land. They said, no, no, no. Said, okay. Then Joseph gives them a condition. You want grain? This is what you got to do. In verse 42, verse 20, and bring your youngest son, your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did. And Joseph's brother's response now when they see this developing, they're at the mercy of Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph. And so now all of a sudden, a pang of conscience comes upon them where they say in Genesis chapter 42, verses 21 and 22, the brothers' response, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For so we saw the anguish of his soul, that's Joseph's soul, when he pleaded with us, when we would not hear, therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do you not sin against the boy? and you would not listen, therefore behold, his blood is now required upon us. So as this whole incident develops with these, with these men in Egypt, suddenly it dawns on them, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. This is God evening the score, not realizing that Joseph was standing right in front of them. Now mind you, some 11 years, give or take, have passed from this time. Joseph is now somewhere around 30 years old. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you know what, Joseph, is, I mean, it, it kind of worked out for him, you know, but uh, he's still bearing the scars and the trauma of what, of what was done to him by his family. Imagine your family, imagine your brothers and sisters betraying you in this way. You're still bearing the scars of it, even though now some 10 or 11 years have passed. Just some verses that demonstrate this. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 24, when they were before him, he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. We read in Genesis chapter 43, verse 30, when Benjamin was mentioned, now his heart, that is Joseph's heart, yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And look at Joseph's emotional state at this time. Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians 
and the house of Pharaoh heard it. You think Joseph wasn't carrying the trauma, the sadness, the pain, the betrayal of what had been done to him by his family, even though years had passed and things were kind of going okay for him now? That is not what the biblical text says. Okay. So, how did Joseph process all this pain? How did he process all this hurt, all this betrayal, everything that goes along with this kind of thing? Well, we get the answer in two places. The first one is in Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 to 8. I'll pick it up there in verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be no plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And the second one comes in Genesis chapter 50, where we read in verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, Please forgive the trespasses of your brothers in their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And here we go again. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph recognized in spite of all the pain, in spite of the betrayal, in spite of the fact that many years later, he's still carrying that pain with him. He realized that God in his providence had orchestrated this whole sequence of events to save his family and prepare them for much, uh, for something much bigger. Just think for a moment. I kind of have a flow chart here in aviation. You get good at making flow charts. 
What would have happened? What would the outcome have been if Jacob had been satisfied with Leah? What would have happened if Jacob did not show favoritism to Joseph? What would have happened if Joseph never had those dreams? What would have happened if Potiphar's wife had not been a strumpet? You see, there's a sequence of events there that all had to take place. God orchestrated this whole sequence of events to save his family and to pre prepare them for something much bigger. And to move him personally from the person that he was as a 17-year-old boy telling his brothers and his mother and father, you guys were all going to bow down to me one day, to being the Joseph of Egypt who would save his whole family from starvation. God moved him, used those circumstances in his life to move him from there to there. So the answer to Joseph's question in his case is to mold him into the person he became and to use that sequence of events for the benefit of others. The reality is as you subtract any of those events in this sequence, and what do you end up with? So now, remember I said in the beginning, there's that puzzle thing that I went through with the school. Well, let's get back to that now. So I thought about this, and it seems to me that as I looked at the life of Joseph, it seemed that Joseph was like this completed puzzle. You know, a puzzle starts out as a complete picture, and there's a, then there's a stamp and a die that breaks it all up into little pieces. And it's a, before the foundation of the world, God had known who Joseph was to be. But he also knew in order for him to become the person that God had destined him to become and to have the accomplishments that God had destined him to have accomplished, that all of these things needed to happen in his life. So all of these little events were like pieces of a puzzle in the life of Joseph. And anybody who puts a puzzle together knows that sometimes puzzles have sharp pieces. And so it's as if God was looking down from heaven and saying, this is what he's going to be when I get done putting all the pieces together. Though there are many pieces that have very sharp edges and will cause him great pain and sorrow, when I fit those pieces into place, it will be then and only through this process that he will become whom I have destined him to be. And I will be able to use him for the benefit of others as well. Joseph will be just one link in a chain of sequence that will ultimately result in the coming of my son and the salvation of this fallen human race. You know what, believer? You and I, we're just like that. We're just like that. 
Each one of us existed as an image in God's mind before the foundation of the world. In time and space, God is bringing that image into fruition like fitting pieces of the puzzle together. As God fits the pieces of the puzzle into place, there will be pieces that have very sharp edges and will cause us a great deal of pain and suffering. We have to go through it. But they are necessary, and we won't become whom God has destined us to be if even a single piece of the puzzle is either changed or missing. Here's where it gets even more mind-blowing. You and I, and as many as the Lord will call to salvation, are part of the same chain of sequence that Joseph is a part of, that God is using, that he will use to usher in the son's return and the establishment of God's kingdom here on earth. Your life is just like that. It's part of the process of God moving us from who we were to who we are destined to become. Doesn't minimize the suffering, doesn't minimize the feelings of anxiety or depression or all of those things that come along with it, but it gives context to it. It gives a greater context to it, and we'll look at that more next week. So then the answer to the Joseph question as it pertains to you, God, why is this happening to me? Number one, to mold you into the person he has destined you to become. Very familiar passage, Romans 8:28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So these things happen to us to mold us into the person that he has destined us to be. But have we ever stopped and thought about the reality that sometimes God brings pain and suffering into our lives, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of those around us? Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. You see, as the, as the immediate disciples of Christ served the Lord faithfully, they went through all kinds of, of trials and suffering and tribulation, all kinds of pain. And yet, God used that to grow them, but it was not only for their benefit, but for our benefit as well. Okay. So that's the why to the Joseph question. Next Sunday, in the light of these truths, what should our attitude and sequence be?